welcome to Down to the Wire, a DHS Press podcast. I'm your host, Varun Shankar. Each week, I'll be taking you through one of the biggest stories in sports with phenomenal guests. This week, I'll be talking about the Wizards with Jake Whitaker and Adam Rubin. As you'll hear during the pod, Adam's call got cut. Hopefully, I'll be able to have him on at another date. Both the guests were really great, and I can't wait for all of you to hear it. So without further ado, let's go and let's get it. Joining me now are Jake Whitaker and Adam Rubin of Bullets Forever and TruthAboutIt.net, respectively. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yes, absolutely. So before I ask any basketball questions, I have to ask Adam this question. Where did your Twitter handle, Liddell's Place, come from? <laughs> well, I could tell your, your age with that question, but it comes from Liddell Eccles, who was a former Washington Bullet in the 90s, who was... Well, I don't know how you describe him, Jake. What would you say? He he shot a lot. He was a high volume player off the bench. A little <laughs> yeah, bit of a weight um, problem. Yeah, um, like uh, Nick Young for um, our generation, I guess. But yeah, Nick Young before Twitter. Yeah, I can't imagine how fun it must have been to see. Fun and infuriating it must have been to see a guy like that play. What was it like watching Nick Young play as a wizard? Because I never got to see him as a wizard. That was before my time as a fan. Well, he, he started out a little bit like JaVale, I think, with promise. You know, so you'd watch him not as, as people watch him now. Uh, there was no Shaq in a fool back then. It's more a mid-round, mid-range, first-round pick. He thought he had some promise. He's making shots, but he's always making these dumb plays and just never seeming to get any better. So it was exciting at first, and then as the years went on, then it became, you know, it wasn't so funny anymore. <laughs> what did you think, Jake? Yeah, yeah. My, my, it's like... If, if he had come around in the late 90s, he would have been one of those guys that was like, is this the next Jordan? Because he, like, he had all the like skills that you would want to kind of be a very dynamic player, but it just he just couldn't ever put it together in a meaningful way. He'd make these crazy layups and really nice dunks, but then he would just give it away by just taking an awful shot or throwing an awful pass, and it just... You know, I mean, he's carved a, a role for himself to survive in the league now for uh, over a decade, but uh, just never what he could have truly been, you know, when you, when you saw, like, those early years. Does personality make him more uh, likable to the fans? I mean, you see a guy like now Kelly Oubre. I mean, Oubre is obviously a much more valuable player than Young, but uh, does a guy like Young's personality make him more likable to the fans? Well, I think definitely with, I think Washington has, because they haven't, going back a few years, because they haven't had the success on the court, those type of players have stood out as as fan favorites because they really had nothing else to cheer for. And you look at what happened when Young went to the Lakers, he became a fan favorite there when the Lakers weren't playing that well, and they were sort of like the Washington Wizards of, of 15 years ago. Right. So I think that's his main value, is his the personality, and and the type of play, too, I think is pro to that, like the the heat checks he'll do. It's fun to watch when he's on fire, and that sort of goes along with his personality, but the other times it's not it's not as fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's it's fun to enjoy him when there's nothing at stake. I think if, you know, he had been a bigger part of the team when they were making a playoff push and he was doing the same kind of things, I think that would have been, you know, more problematic, and, you know, there probably would have been a little more bitterness there. But, you know, it's it's a lot easier to just 
enjoy the fun things, even when they were bad, like when he was, you know, throwing layups over the backboard, you know, it's, it's just kind of like, Oh, that's old Nick, you know? And it's, it's, it's a little, you know, easier to kind of relive it that way. I mean, instead of talking about that wizards team, let's move to this wizards team. Now, Adam, I want to start with you. Why do you think the wizards have been successful so far this year, even though they've been missing John wall for an extended period of time? Well, I think it starts with, Sadoransky's contributions and so I think it's more people have obviously put out the question of are they better without John Wall and I don't think it's it's that I mean obviously I think people don't actually believe that but it's more having a player like Sadoransky who's a low usage player who can move the ball around and get Otto more involved and and Beal's obviously taken on a bigger role too and I think Markeith's health as well that's something that people don't talk about too much I mean he was not playing that well early on he was injured when Wall was playing, injured himself. So I think Markeith coming around and being a full, full-time full player now and actually with full contributions has made a, a big difference as well. And uh, you talked about Markeith there. Is Markeith, I've heard a lot of times that he's the emotional barometer of this team almost. If he's out there playing hard, the rest of the team is playing hard, do you think that that's true or do you think that's a little bit over-exaggerated? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Jake, what, what my thought would be that He's sort of the emotional barometer of himself in that there's times where his head has to be in it and he'll play well. I don't know if that necessarily translates to the team playing well. When when he plays well, the team does seem to do well. But it's more that he's so inconsistent, his emotional, his mindset seems to dictate how he's going to play. And I think they're capable of overcoming bad Markeith games, right? Now that they have Oubre can come in and they can play small with Otto at the four. But I think it's more of his emotions seem to be uh, driving his play on a night-to-night basis a lot more than than other players. I put maybe Ubre up there as well. Yeah, I, I think it's not so much that like he's like an emotional leader, but it is something like you know when he's gets off to a bad start and he gets like two fouls in like the first four minutes. You know, I, you, know you kind of see in the team it's just like oh come on, you know it's it's going to be one of those kind of nights. And so I, I think there's something to the idea that you know even if he's not maybe a traditional leader. Um, you know, he does kind of set the tone in some, uh, unintentional ways. Um, but yeah, it's just something when he is on, he makes the team so much more dynamic because he has such a diverse skill set that you can have him, you know, be more of a traditional stretch four with wall, or you can make him more of a dynamic playmaking for Sadoransky. And, you know, he's just very versatile and we've seen it now with how he, has been playing a lot more small ball center. That's been working well. So he's definitely um, an interesting piece, but it's always kind of a question of which one are you going to get. You guys both talked about Sadoransky there. What makes him so good? Because I saw him play last year, and I didn't see it. I mean, there were talks after the season about him moving to maybe a wing position because of his uh, height and length. And this year, I mean, he looks like a totally different player in terms of shot creation. What do you think makes Sadoransky so good? Okay, um, yeah, so I think the thing with Sadoransky is, um, you know, if you look at some of, like, the advanced numbers, like, the the positive impact was there last season, even if his production wasn't necessarily there. But I think now having guys like Beal and Porter develop and get better, it it accentuates the off-ball skills that he has and just his ability to keep the ball moving around and getting it into, you know, Beal and Porter's hands more where they can do more with it. So I think it's something, yeah, Sadoransky has grown just by 
product of having, you know, more NBA experience and just kind of having a better feel for the league now. But I think it also, you know, it's always something that's been there, but I think now the roster is better suited to actually take advantage of what he does well. And now Scott Brooks sees the value in just having him as a point guard as opposed to kind of moving him all around the perimeter. You talked about how Porter and Beal have been better. Beal was always dynamic, especially even when Wall was around, but it seemed like Porter would be extremely inconsistent. And now that Wall is out and he's sort of had to take the lion's share of shots when Beal is off the court, Otto's really been asserting himself as the second option on this team. Do you think that that's going to stay once Wall gets back? Or do you think once Wall gets back, Otto's going to revert back to a more passive role? Um, Well, I I think that, that's going to be something that largely depends on wall. I think, you know, obviously you don't want to take wall away from what he does best, but you know, we've seen that the wizards can do some unique things, um, with kind of a different approach. And I think there's a lot of elements with what Sadoransky does off the ball. You know, even if he's not going to shoot, you know, 45% like Sadoransky has been doing, uh, this season from deep, you know, he can cut off the ball and, and that, opens up so much more for Otto and Beal. And so I, I think, you know, the key is, you know, especially as we get to the playoffs, I suspect we're going to see Porter a lot more at the four. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there to get him involved in pick and rolls, and pick and pops, and just some different situations that can keep him more engaged. It's just a matter of um, really emphasizing it as uh, Wall gets back into the flow of things. You talked about Sadoransky's off-ball movement there, and that's something that puts him in direct contrast with Wall. I don't know if it was because of the injury, but this year I saw a stat from Matt Moore of uh, CBS Sports and now the Action Network, and he said that Wall only logged one one cut the whole year when he was playing. I mean, do you think that that's a byproduct of the injury, or do you think that that's just the player that Wall is? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, he's never really developed um, his off-ball game just because he really hasn't had to, you look at, you know, high school, you look at college, he's never really been asked to be the guy off the ball. So you can't, uh, you know, expect him to have that same kind of understanding that someone that's had to flex around different positions like Sadoransky has. That said, I think it's gotten even worse this year because of the knee injuries he's suffered. And, you know, it's not only just that he's not cutting off the ball, but, you know, there's, you know, there was a stat out there that he was—he spent more time either standing still or walking than any other player in the NBA this year, and I think that speaks to, you know, when you're playing hurt, you're less likely to, you know, put that little extra oomph in that you might when you're fully healthy. And I don't think that's, you know, a criticism of Wall is just kind of the reality of trying to battle through pain, and so hopefully the surgery can kind of help clear that up and. You know, hopefully he's been you know taking this opportunity to kind of see some of those ways that he can stay engaged with the offense when Beal has the ball in his hands or Porter has the ball in his hands. Yeah, I mean, when he doesn't move without the ball and a guy like Beal or Porter has the ball, that makes their job that much harder because then the defense is able to key in on them more. And now that Sadoransky is in and he's constantly moving and constantly disrupting the defense, that opens up so many more things for Beal and Porter. And that's another reason, not just that Wall is out, it's also because of the movement from Sadoransky that they've been so good. Do you think that when Wall comes back, uh, 
Sadoransky should still have some minutes with this starting lineup with him, Beal, Porter, Morris, and then Gortat? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you kind of look at the way the playoff rotation broke out last year. Brandon Jennings was essentially flexing between playing shooting guard alongside Wall and then being point guard when Beal was in the game. And now you're looking at a a situation where Sadoransky can play that role, and I think he would be significantly uh, better in that role because he can shoot, he can run the offense a little more effectively, and, you know, his jumper is actually falling. So um, I I think there's a lot of advantages there, and I think, you know, Washington would be, you know, frankly silly not to um, still give him an important role when Wall comes back. I think especially once, um, you know, we get to times when, you know, Brooks is going to more of like an eight-man rotation. I think Sadoransky is going to be critical to getting – Wall and Beal, the rests that they need, that they weren't always getting, um, especially in the Boston series when they were playing like 45 minutes a game. You know, if Sadoransky could get that down to like 40, I think um, that's better for everyone involved. You talked about how Sadoransky, sorry, about how Jennings played with Wall. Do you think that we'll see Sadoransky playing with Wall? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what they'll probably try to do is get Beal out early, and then we kind of see Wall and Sadoransky together in the backcourt, and then when Wall comes out, you know, Sadoransky would slide to the point guard, and then Beal could slide in as the two, and then you kind of avoid those uh, ineffective lineups where Beal's effectively been the point guard, and it's uh, hasn't been um, quite ideal. Yeah, we've seen that this season so far, especially sometimes in the fourth quarter recently when Brooks will go without a point guard, and he'll play Beal as a point guard, and Beal for all the skills that Beal has, he hasn't developed enough to play the point guard. He can still initiate the offense, but he doesn't have the necessary passing ability or vision to be the starting point guard or play as the point guard. Do you think that the all-bench lineup of Sadoransky, Meeks, Ubre, Scott, and Mahini can be effective in the playoffs? No. I think... And, you know, you see a lot of this in the playoffs. It, you know, it kind of goes down from, like, ten players to nine and then eight. And then sometimes even seven. It's just, you know, when the playoffs come and you have more time to rest, it's less critical for your eighth, ninth, tenth men to be on the court and, uh, you know, making contributions. And um, so I, I, I suspect that, you know, when it gets down to it, we'll probably see, you know, Sadoransky, Ubre. And then, you know, either Scott or Mahimi, depending on the matchup, kind of being that eighth man. But I, I think beyond that, I don't think we'll really see that all-bench lineup unless it's um, a game that's out of hand. And you say that, so if you're going to play a hybrid lineup with some bench guys and then some starters, what do you think that bench lineup, that hybrid lineup should be so that some of the guys still have some chemistry? I mean... I think Porter and Sadoransky have played really well together. I think they're the really good combo. I saw a stat from Andy Bailey that said they, they were above, they were outscoring teams by more than 10 points per 100 possessions when they played together. Do you think that that should be a combo that's played together? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not the best at like constructing these lineups, but I, I think the key is to one, you know, really get Porter at the four as much as possible. I think that's really 
where he's most effective. You don't want to waste those minutes in the regular season because it does take more of a, a physical toll. But I think um, I think it's really important as the playoffs come along and you can get him more rest to get him more exposure there. And then, you know, you have a little more flexibility at center to kind of play the matchup, whether you want Gortat's pick-and-roll ability or, you know, Mahimi's uh, – defensive prowess or Morris just being able to switch and kind of give you uh, um, a more dynamic option. I think that's really critical. And then, you know, you just hope that Ubre can give you the spacing that you need before. And, um, you know, just, you know, I I think, you know, the the real key is Sadoransky just um, being able to um, move from point guard to shooting guard and maybe even, small forward in certain situations to kind of pair with Wall and Beal um, that I think give Washington a lot more options than they had uh, at this time last year. You talked about playing Wall, Saransky, and Beal together. I saw something floated out by Zachary Rosen where he called it the Wizard of Oz lineup where you'd have Wall at the point guard, Beal at the shooting guard, Saransky at the three, Ubre at the four, and then Porter at the five. No traditional center on the court. I mean, I see the issues with that lineup immediately. You got no rim protection. You got a little bit, a lack of rebounding. But do you think that that lineup could be played in short spurts during the playoffs? Absolutely. And I mean, you know, and frankly, you you look at Gortat and Mahimi's uh, block numbers. It's not as if they're um, stellar rim protectors as it is. And you know, I think when you have a lineup like that, the rim protection is just having so much versatility on the perimeter that you can kind of keep guys out of the paint in the first place. So, yeah, I think that's um, an exciting, interesting lineup. I'm not, you know, it, it kind of depends on who you face in the first round. I think, uh, you know, if they draw Philadelphia, we probably won't see that lineup unless they're, you know, really confident they can get and beat off the floor. But I, I wouldn't have that much optimism in it, but, um, but I think especially against a team like the Pacers or you know, maybe even the Bucks, that might be an interesting uh, lineup to throw out there. You started talking about some potential playoff matchups, so let's get right into that. Right now the Wizards are in fourth place in the East, and fifth is the Pacers. How do you think the Wizards match up with the Pacers? Uh, I, I think that's probably their best matchup because um, the Pacers' defense is probably a little bit behind uh, the other teams that they would see in that spot, and they don't have the same uh, level of playoff experience um, as a team like the Bucks that's been there a couple times. And you know, while the Sixers are are very inexperienced, that talent level is just so great that I think um, if you could avoid it, um, it would be preferable to kind of deal with Indiana first. Playing the Sixers legitimately scares me. I mean. You see Embiid and some of the stuff he's doing. Then Simmons in just his first year. I mean, I've never seen a rookie play that well. I mean, he's truly special. And that team, just the two of them scares me enough that I don't want to draw them in the first round. But the point you made about Indiana is a good one because I think their best player is in, uh, is definitely Victor Oladipo. And behind that, the talent level really drops off. I mean, is their second best player Miles Turner or is it like DeMontis Sabonis? So I, that's... Yeah. Wednesday to day, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, it's not a team that scares you per se. I mean, I know they beat Washington when they came in here a few days ago, but that's a regular season game. It's without Wall, and honestly, Wall matched up with Darren Collison 
is a matchup that I would take 10 times out of 10 every single day of the week. And mm-hmm. so you, you also mentioned the Bucks there. The Bucks are a team that's similar to the Sixers, scares me just because of the pure talent level on the team. What do you think of them? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I think, you know, in a lot of the Wizards' recent playoff series, you could always say Washington had the best player on the floor, but that wouldn't be the case against Milwaukee. Giannis has just been so great. But, you know, I, I think it is, at least conceptually, a little easier to game plan around Giannis because you know he can't beat you from outside regularly. Um, I mean, he's certainly had a lot of success against Washington, but I think it's, you know, he's a little easier to slow down. And, I mean, you know, their coaching situation is in flux, so that could kind of, uh, you know, mess with some things, you know, when push comes to shove late in the season. And, um, you know, I mean, the Bucks' height certainly scares you, and they've had a lot of success um, in transition against Washington this year. But I think, um, you know, I, I would still um, rather play Milwaukee than Philadelphia. So if you're ranking the playoff matchups in terms of who you want, you got Indiana. Would the Heat be in second place? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, just the Heat, you know, they just have such a good system that I think they could give Washington some fits. Um, I don't think they're probably going to be at, the, at a place where they face Washington at this point. But, yeah, I would probably have them uh, second behind Indiana. The thing about Miami is they've got 10 guys they put out there every night, and they've got, I saw that instead of a big three, they have a good 10. And then mm-hmm. so that doesn't really help you that much in the, in the playoffs where, the like you said, the rotations shrink from 10 to 7 even. And so I feel like that matchup and that advantage for them gets negated. And then, you know, they're stuck relying on guys like Hassan Whiteside, who's... You know, a stat cruncher for sure, but he's not really a productive NBA player. And then uh, I know that I know that Goran Dragic is a very good NBA player, but he's not a superstar who's going to beat you by himself. So I feel like the Heat are also a very favorable matchup for the Wizards. And then you got Milwaukee, and then I'm guessing the last team is Philadelphia. Does the depth concerns on Philadelphia scare you at all? Outside of Simmons and Embiid, they don't seem to have too much on that team. Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly they got a little better when they added um, Bellinelli and Ilyasova, and, you know, they kind of have a little bit of chemistry together uh, from their Atlanta days. So I think that might help them out a bit. They've had some good success against Washington uh, in recent years, but I think, um, you know, I, I think the depth is what will hurt them, and I, I, I will be curious to see um, how hard Philadelphia pushes, especially Embiid, um, you know how you know how willing are they to ramp up his minute loads to you know 40, 45 minutes a game, or or do they try to you know kind of hedge their bets and you know wait another year and get a little more comfortable with where he is with his health before they kind of do that? So um, that would be very interesting to monitor um, in a first round playoff series, but. Um, yeah, I think you know even at 35 minutes a game, MB can still um, create a lot of problems for Washington. I think that when Philadelphia came to DC earlier in the year and the two teams met, Gortat seemed to do a really good job against MB, just bothering in the post. Gortat's also, um, 
absolutely massive man in terms of a post defender. So I think he's one of the few guys who's not going to get absolutely overpowered by Embiid. But then you have the concern of when Embiid steps out to the three-point line and starts doing some dribble moves. And, you know, Gortat in space is not something the Wizards are going to want to see, which it's absolutely not a good idea for the Wizards if they want to be anything relevant in this playoffs, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, it's, you know, Mahimi, um, he's going to have the same issue. And, and, you know, unlike Gortat, he's just going to reach out and, you know, <laughs> pick up the foul. So, you know, that's it doesn't really help you much. You kind of just have to hope um, – Morris can hold his own, and you know I think he did fairly well in that last matchup uh, a couple weeks ago. But um, you know, would that hold up over you know a seven game series? That's going to be uh, the big question if they have to face each other. Switching gears quickly, when I when we saw at the beginning of the year, I heard a lot of people saying that the key to this Wizards team wasn't going to be Wall, wasn't going to be Wheel Beal, it wasn't going to be Porter, it was going to be Kelly Oubre and his development from year one to year two. What have you seen in Uber's development? Uh, I think the big thing is just he's become much more assertive off the dribble when he needs to be. He's not you know, ever going to be that guy that's giving you you know four assists a game off the wing, but just being able to you know dribble past a closeout and you know make the the right pass to keep the offense moving, even if it doesn't lead to that immediate assist. It's such a valuable thing. And, you know, he's gotten a lot more comfortable using his left hand, which, you know, makes him a lot more uh, versatile attacking the rim. You know, in his rookie season, you you know, teams could just load up knowing he was only going to attack one way. And just, just having that extra versatility makes him so much more of a threat when he needs to, do something other than shoot and thankfully he's been really great shooting the ball this year he's you know been hovering around you know 40 percent for most of the season and you know when he's got that shot falling it makes Washington so hard to guard because you can run Wall, Beal, Oubre, Porter and then you know whoever you want at center and you've got you know three guys who can really just spread the floor and um, it just opens so much up for Wall or Sadoransky or you know, whoever else is on the floor. His shooting has been really impressive because last year, did his form look this good? Because I feel like his form looks a lot cleaner this year, and I don't know if that's just me. Yeah, no, um, he, he talked a little bit about it at the start of the season. He, um, you know, his, his trainer, Drew Hanlon, um, did a lot with him to kind of correct that form and make it more more of a consistent but quick release because, you know, that's really the key when you've got um, a guy in the corner because it's a you know shorter line in the corner than it is at the top of the arc. So you have to really know how to get it off quickly, but do it in a way that um, is reliable. And I think that's just been all the difference in the world and really made him um, someone that other teams have to take seriously. And when you know you have that gravity to pull defenders away from the paint, it opens up so much more for everyone else. And I think that's a big key of why Washington's bench has been um, much more productive this season. Uber has been an absolute asset for this team. And you talked about the quick release. Sadoransky's shot doesn't seem to be one of the quickest in the NBA. He seems to take a decent amount of time to load up before he releases. Could that be an issue if you move him to the two or the three? I, in some respects, yes. And I think that's you know going to be you know, the one thing that holds it back. But at the same time, um, 
you know, relative to the other options Washington has, it's, um, you know, it, it's still their best option. Meeks, you know, has a really nice looking clean release, but the shot just has not been falling all season. And, um, you know, he presents a lot of defensive issues and, I mean, that's really it unless Washington makes some kind of late move. But, I mean, at this point, I don't, really don't even know who is out there who could make a difference. So I think, you know, while, yes, yeah, Sadoransky does have some of those issues, at least if you kick the ball out to him and he doesn't have the time to release, um, you know, he can attack those closeouts, get, into, get inside and try to make something else happen. And I think, uh, um, you know, he can still provide a lot of value that way. That thing you talked about, attacking closeouts, that seems to be something that this Wizards team does really well as a whole. Is that something that Brooks, you think Brooks coaches specifically, or do you think that's that's just because of the skill set of the players on the team? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, if if you go back and look at, um, you know, the Wizards under Randy Whitman, um, yes, the roster was a little more based on having guys as, you know, standstill shooters, guys like, you know, Garrett Temple, Chris Humphreys, Jared Dudley. But, you know, also, you know, I, I think Brooks has a lot of experience developing guys um, that are talented enough to do something with a closeout. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a nice harmony of having the right players, but also um, a coach who knows how to do the right things with the right players. You talked about how Brooks might be the right coach, and there's been moments where I think he's been really good for this team in terms of the in, ter- in terms of developing young players like Porter and Ubre. But at times he just seems to do really just dumb things in the middle of a game, whether it's playing without a point guard or consistently trying to play someone ahead of Sadoransky, whether it was Trey Burke or Brandon Jennings or this year Tim Frazier. What do you think of Brooks so far? throughout, I think this is now his second year with the team. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something I think, you know, most people knew coming in that, you know, he wasn't ever going to be the best tactician. And I think, you know, the thing to keep in mind with that is, you know, some of the things that are maybe suboptimal as a tactician are what help players develop, you know, in an ideal world, Ubre probably should have gotten more playing time than he did um, early on, and you know the same could be said for Sadoransky. But at the same time, you know who's to say that that isn't the very thing that helped them develop into what they are? Um, I'm not saying that you know it was some kind of Jedi mind trick. Only <laughs> you know Brooks can really know um, you know what the whole grand scheme of things is, but. You know, it's something, if it, if it was as simple as to say, you know, just remove Brooks the tactician and just have Brooks the developer, I think it would, you know, be a lot easier. But, you know, sometimes these things go hand in hand and you kind of just have to, you know, live with the results. But, I mean, I think the good news is um, the Wizards, even though they have more options now, um, I think the rotation, once they get to the playoffs, will be pretty well-defined to the point where um, it's going to be hard for Brooks to overthink it too much. But, um, you know, only time will tell. You talked about the rotation there. Can we clearly and definitively say that this bench the of the Wizards this year is better than what they had last year? Absolutely. 
you know, Ubre just alone makes things better because he's just such a such a more dynamic player than he was last season. But then, you know, upgrading from Trey Burks and Brandon Jennings to Sadoransky. And I mean even can't say yeah, that the difference. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, Frazier, as frustrating as he's been, I think you could, you know, make the case that he would alone would have been a little bit of an upgrade. And then, you know, you add Mike Scott into the picture. Um, you know, he's going to have his up and down moments because so much of his value is tied into whether or not he's making or missing shots. But when he makes them, he just gives a, just a much more interesting option there at the four to, um, you know, give the bench a little more pop offensively. And, you know, he's held up surprisingly well defensively too. So, um, yeah, there's so much more value on the bench this season than last. I don't like Ernie Grunfield any more than the average Wizards fan, but even I have to give him credit for Mike Scott's signing. I mean, when I saw it happen back in the offseason, I didn't think much of it. But he's been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, he's aggressive when he gets the ball. He doesn't hold it for too long. He's a little bit tunnel. He has a bit of tunnel vision when he gets the ball in terms of he's going to be the guy who takes a shot. But he's been a really good asset for this team. And honestly, he kept the bench afloat during some of the darker days early in the season. Thank you so much. No, continue. Yeah, I was yeah, I was just gonna say I, it's it's one of those things that it's it's kind of the blessing and the curse of it though because because he's only locked up for a year, um, it, it kind of makes things complicated this summer to keep him without overpaying him, which is um, you know something that uh, Grunfeld has fell into the trap in the past with uh, you know Deshaun Stevenson, even though that contract worked out fairly well, and then Martel Webster, which did not work out as well. Um, you know, when he finds these guys, um, you know, on the scrap heap, signs them to a one-year deal, um, they outperform what people expect, and then Washington either has to, you know, overpay to keep them or let them walk for nothing. And, you know, I think that same dynamic could be at work here this summer. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, he definitely deserves credit for finding him and taking a chance on him when, uh, you know, there was still a lot up in the air with, uh, you know, kind of the stuff that he had been through the last couple of years. And, you know, it's good to see that Scott's turned it around. You talked about how they're going to have to pay, they might have to pay Scott after this year. And that's one of the more scary things about the Wizards in terms of their salary cap situation. This year seems pretty fine, but soon there's going to be contracts that come up, whether it be Scott, Ubre, Sadoransky is going to be a restricted free agent in a few years. I mean, that's that's not something I'm looking forward to as a Wizards fan, especially since Wall's contract in that last year is over $40 million in terms of a salary cap. What do you think of the Wizards' salary cap situation going forward? Yeah, it's going to be, um, I think this next season is going to dictate a lot because they have to figure out um, what they want to do with Martin Gortat and Marquise Morris. Um, because if they let both of those guys walk and get nothing in return, then you're losing you know, two of your starters and, you know, really two of your eight best players uh, for nothing. And even at that point, uh, they're still going to be above the salary cap. So they're not going to have a lot of flexibility to, um, you know, sign starting level players to replace those guys. So uh, I think they're going to have to get very creative with, uh, you know, kind of whether it's attaching draft picks to get somebody that can stay long term or, 
you're doing something else. They got to find a way to um, bring in some new talent um, before um, they lose guys to free agency. Because I mean, um, you know, it's going to be a few years before they really have any meaningful cap space. And even when they do, you know, a lot of that's going to have to go to keeping Ubre and keeping Sadoransky or, you know, even Otto Porter, he only has uh, two more years before he can exercise a player option. And if he keeps on this growth curve, there's um, plenty of reason to think he could opt out. And then Washington has another problem on their hands. So it's going to be uh, tricky to see how they play this out. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things you, you, you kind of just have to pay wall and live with the risk of it. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that works out. I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about maybe pulling something similar to what the Clippers did with Blake Griffin and trading Wall before that contract becomes just absolutely bloated. But I, I just can't see the Wizards doing that, especially with a guy like Grunfeld and uh, Ted Leonsis. I don't feel like they would have the ruthless ability to just trade a guy after saying that he was a face of the franchise. Yeah, and I think... Uh, you know, just, you know, considering everything Washington has been through these last few decades, I think, you know, yeah, there's, you know, that fear that, yeah, Wall maybe becomes that next arenas that, you know, you just remember the bloated end of his contract and kind of gloss over the really great moments he brought you at the beginning. But I think, you know, if you want to establish yourself as a free agent destination, I think it's, you know, important to make sure that you're, um, treating your your franchise players uh, the right way. So I think, you know, and I think that's what Washington is committed to doing is you kind of becoming more of a steady place that, you know, even if people might criticize them for not having that, like, next gear against title contention, just being in the mix is a huge step forward. And so I, I, I think they'll be patient. Uh, you know, there's, you know, with all the noise and everything else, I think the key is just to um, stick it out. And, you know, I think Wall will pay dividends at the end. I mean, like you said, being in the mix and just being good is something that is so underrated in this NBA, especially because of what the Warriors have been able to do. I mean, you look at what a team like the Rockets did. They signed Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon, knowing very well that those guys weren't going to help them beat the Warriors. And many people looked at them and thought, why are you doing that? I mean, why are you signing these guys that aren't going to put you over the hump. And, you know, seeing how they were good and seeing the potential that was there was why Chris Paul said to the Clippers that I'm going to go there, make it happen in some way, or else I'll just opt out and find a way to get there. And now you see what the Rockets are doing. I mean, I don't want to say that they have a chance because it's still the Warriors and they're light years ahead of where everyone else is, but the Rockets seem to have a slight chance at the very least. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's just, you, you, you know, when you've got a player, you know, in that hardened level or that wall level, you have to do what you can to keep them interesting and keep them, you know, in that position where, you know, if a star um, becomes free somewhere else that you can maybe, um, you know, get in the mix. I mean, you know, it's something you wish Washington had a few more uh, young assets to really get into you know, some of those talks, um, like, you know, last year would have been nice if they had, you know, maybe a little more to get to the Paul George sweepstakes, you know, didn't work out, but, um, you know, hopefully the fact that they were kept on to their first round pick this year, 
um, you know, hopefully they can develop that into something to either raise the ceiling of the team or develop it into an asset that you can flip for, you know, another star to kind of complement what you have. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, all you can do. I know it's a, you know, there's a lot of people that kind of just fall in the, you know, you either need to be a title contender or blow it up. But, you know, there's something to be said for just kind of um, lurking and waiting and kind of just hoping that um, things can kind of fall your way when the time's right. If there's one lesson from what we've seen in the NBA over the last two or three years is that anything is possible, like KG said. And I think for the Wizards, if they can get some star to say, I want to come here. I mean, John Wall is one of the more well-connected players in the league. He's friends with LeBron. Not saying that LeBron is anywhere near coming here, but there's a real possibility that over the next few years, a star becomes disgruntled and decides that D.C. is the place where they want to spend the rest of their career instead of where they are right now. Thank you so much, Jake, for joining us. Where can everyone check out your work? Uh, Head over to bulletsforever.com or um, hit us up on the social media at Bullets Forever. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. And I don't know what happened to Adam Rubin. I think his call disconnected, but hopefully we'll be able to have both of you on at a later date to talk about this exciting Wizards team. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, thank you to Jake and Adam for coming on to talk. I'll have another pod dropping sometime next week with a huge guest that I'm extremely excited for. In the meanwhile, don't forget to like, repost, and share. Till next time, this is Varun Shankar, signing off.